Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Will you fasten your seatbelts for takeoff, please? Thank you. Kia ora, hello and welcome to Sound Salad, where we toss around all things spoken and all things heard. Brought to you by Audiobooks New Zealand, New Zealand's leading producer of audio content. We hope that you will have a pleasant journey, and if we can add to your comfort in any way, please do not hesitate to press the call bell. Kia ora everybody and welcome to another episode of Sound Salad. So today I am with Minnie Baragwanath. Now I've been very excited about this interview. We've been trying to tee this up for a wee while now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was delighted to be the narrator for Minnie's biographical book, Blindingly Obvious, which is out now. We'll have all the details and the posted notes about how you can access that. So the book sort of tells of her travels and her stories as a partially sighted woman and access advocate and was destined to be the country's most accessible published book to date, which I believe it is. It's achieved that mantle. So um, without further ado, Minnie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what compelled you to write your story, which is awesome? (laughs) Well, look, hey, look, so lovely to be here. Thank you. And um, yes, it was fantastic that um, you could be the voice of my book. And um, because as a someone who's partially blind, I couldn't read my own book to do the audio, of course, ironically or mm. paradoxically or um, one of those words. And um, so writing the book, well, it's, oh gosh, there were a couple of reasons for it. Um, I used to run a social change organisation and through that organisation called Be Accessible, we we ran a leadership programme. And one of the participants on the programme said to me once, what's it like being a blind woman CEO and founder of um, a social enterprise? And I thought, huh, what is it like, you know? And um, because, you know, I hadn't really stopped to think about it. I was just doing what I felt I needed to do in the world. Mm. And so that planted probably the first seed. And then uh, in 2020, during that fabulous year of COVID, um, (laughs) (laughs) I had a, a little bit of a confronting health moment where I had a heart attack and, um, really came face to face with my mortality and thought, gosh, you know, if I do want to write this book, perhaps I really need to prioritize it and and get on with it rather than just having it as a pipe dream. Yeah. And so it took a few months to get things sort of organized. And then I I I wrote it um last yeah, in 2021. I started in January and finished pretty much finished um July. So it was a very focused Yeah. Um, I, I, I stepped out of every other commitment I had, um, in order to focus entirely on it. And I have to say, I actually loved the process of writing. Yeah, I bet. Gosh, I mean, that's what, six months. That's, Mm. that's incredibly, um, incredibly quick. I've got a lot of, I mean, you know, I myself am a writer. I've got a lot of writer friends. I've met a lot of other writers through, um, through doing this podcast. And most people will sort of, you know, say that they kind of ruminate over things for a year. It might take between two and three years to kind of get a first draft, all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, um, to sort of just be able to go, right, the time is now to recognise that in a really internal pull sense and then just go, bugger it, I'm prioritising this, everything else is just by the wayside and this is, you know, I think that's... um, 
that's that's definitely something to be admired hugely. I think oh, you know. Thank um, you. Yeah. Well, I think like writing in general, I suppose it's sort of something that you know oh. you, you can kind of flock in and flock out of it. You know what I mean? And I think yes, um, yes. The fact that you did just sit and kind of um, get it all out from sort of go to woe, I feel is kind of actually reflected within the storytelling of the book itself. You know. Um, mm-hmm. Which which is really cool because it feels like when you when you're reading it, it definitely feels like there were really specific key points of change and growth within your life, and and within yeah. a lot of your professional sort of like enterprises, we'll say because there are a lot of them, and we'll go there in a second. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, there were the, it, it, it seems like with with that sudden sort of push of inspiration, there were just really obvious key moments of growth and change that happened to you within your life um, mm. that marked each of those chapters or that just kind of almost mapped it for you. Was that um, was that kind of a little bit what the sort of process was like or was it a big sort of sift through lots of memories and really oh, whittle goodness. through stuff or was it blindingly obvious? <laughs> <laughs> it, oh, my goodness. Look, it... Um, Look, if I'm really honest, I made that sound really straightforward, didn't I, by saying sat down in January and finished in July. But (laughs) actually, when I sat down in January, I had this day where I absolutely fell apart and hit the wall and and went, what the hell have I done? Because I'd, I'd, you know, done that thing where there was now nothing standing between me and the writing of the book Mm. other than myself. And let's be honest, we can get in the way of ourselves. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so I did have this day where I just thought, gosh, what have I done? Where do I begin? How do I start? I'd, I'd sort of tried to map out um, key elements that I thought would go in the book. I had three amazing mentors, I have to say, at this point. Um, Jeff Walker, who was the, um, he used to run Penguin New Zealand, um, and is now sort of a private consultant. And he came on as, as as my editor, but more than an editor, he really was, he did help mentor me. But also Roger and Shirley Horrocks, both of whom are really well known in the arts world and film and mm. um, both huge supporters of Len Lai. And anyway, yeah. but both amazing storytellers. And so what I did when I had this meltdown <laughs> is um, I actually rang Shirley, who I've known for a long time and um, is an extraordinary person, and said, look, Shirley, I've I've set this goal for myself, but I've just suddenly, I feel like I've just lost the thread. And she and Roger came around the next day, sat with me in my backyard, and Basically, Roger said, now, Minnie, what's the, you know, what's the one or two sentence synopsis? I did have that. Mm. And um, and then I showed him my, you know, all the notes that I'd pulled together that I thought could make a book um, at a high level, you know, the structure. And he yeah. looked at me and he said, Minnie, this is 10 books here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so really what he did is he helped me really strip it back to well, what – you know, um, it's the first person narrative, it's my story, um, and build out from there. And, and then he also gave me a couple of amazing tips around, you know, the things that you often hear, but, you know, make sure you've got a beautiful space set up. And I did that, you know, I had a really lovely space in my house to write. And, um, and he also said, make sure every day when you finish writing, you leave something still in the tank. So you don't sort of write yourself out the day before. So you're picking up a 
there's still some momentum there from the day, momentum there from the day before. And I, and so there was just something. And he said, look, if you just get one sentence down, actually that's great. Yeah. And um, so I think there was something about that whole process of, of meeting and talking with, with um, Roger and Shirley. Literally the next day I sat down and um, started what became a, a, a real ritualistic um, writing routine where I, I'd get up every morning, have a coffee, take my dog for a walk, and then sit down and write until about midday or one o'clock. And um, it was almost like suddenly it all it all came together. And um, um, and once I got started, yes, you're right. I what I'd mapped out originally sort of informed it, but actually. I then, I was constantly surprised by what came up, you know, and I thought, God, Mm. I didn't know I was going to write about that part of my life um, or that particular moment. Um, And so there was a lot of sense making about my life. I came to understand my life more richly through the writing. Um, I thought I knew, and then it was, of course, it changed so much through the process of writing. And I also made the decision, um, I have an amazing woman, who I've known a long time, who's been sort of a coach and counsellor in my life. And we had weekly sessions throughout this because I knew this was going to bring up a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah fair enough. Um, you know, and I wanted to be really honest, open, go to places that were at times deeply personal, go to places at times that might be a bit confronting in terms of some of my professional life. Mm. And I felt it was really important that, A, I was writing in a way that, meant I was I was writing things in a way that I could feel good about and that I that retained my integrity and authenticity but also that I wasn't being unfair or unreasonable to other people do you know there's something about I felt there were things I needed to name and and talk about but I was trying to do it in a way that wasn't too shaming or blaming or and so by having someone to work stuff through with through conversation I think it really helped the refinement Mm. um and so whilst there was a certain amount that got left out, most of what I wrote actually stayed in, if you like. So there wasn't, it wasn't that I wrote too much and we had to strip heaps out afterwards. It was pretty much what ended up in each chapter stayed in, more, more or less. Yeah, right. I don't know that I've answered your question at all, Romy. Oh, look, <laughs> tangents, tangents are what, are what you know, conversations and stories are made of. I'm, I'm, I'm fully here for that. Don't worry. I don't even remember my question. It's a great, it's, oh, it's great. <laughs> no, I mean, I, yeah, I just, I mean, I find, I found from reading your book that it was, it was endlessly fascinating. And I think, I, I mean, I can hear you in terms of um, where you'd come from. Um, wanting to write sensitively about some of the things that you sort of start to discuss. But also, um, I don't know, excuse my French, but like fuck that at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Because some of the stuff that you needed to bring to the fore was stuff that I, as an individual that doesn't suffer from any kind of disability or any kind of... um, Mm access issue I had mm. absolutely no idea about and I think that it's 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 vitally yeah. important I mean obviously you know I mentioned that you do work within the realm of advocacy you are a walking advocate for many <laughs> many access um uh, subjects issues um movements so to speak right right so mm. I um I don't know I kind of I sensed there was interestingly like you know the the sort of thing of wanting to not dwell too much within the frustration of how limited 
some of the advancements mm. are that we have, but at mm. the same time actually going, well, yeah, we are bloody limited. And yeah. there are some really simple, easy ways that humans yeah. in general could just make life a heck of a lot easier and a heck of yes. a lot more accessible for people with any any realm of sort of different access issues, right? So I think there was a certain element of it that um, the frustration sort of can um, can be felt cathartically by the readers to sort of get on their own kind of justice warrior boat and go, well, hang on a minute, this is something that I've never been educated on before. I thought I was just going to pick up a book and read this read about this lovely woman's life with this amazing mm. yellow jacket, which Minnie wears, and so many of her and so much of her publicity, she's got this stunning yellow jacket on, like mustard coat. Oh, Oh, it's to die for shit. It is um, a great coat. Oh, it's I so have good. to agree with you. It's so good. Um, and it suits Minnie to a T. Um, <laughs> but um, I think, yeah, I don't know. There's, there, there are sort of frustrations within the book that is a sort of theme mm. as you get into the nitty gritty of yeah. really, f- you know, um, identifying some of the things, just general life things that you had to kind of push against just to be able to engage in a you know, inverted commas, normal fashion with anything yes. like work, um, dating, like yeah. I- anything, right? So yeah. how have you felt? Because, um, I mean, obviously that was sort of, this is the, the, this is a biographical book going sort of mm. b- back into your past. So with regards to a lot of those things, how, where does that sit now with regards to the sort of advancements that we've made? In, in any of those areas? Because I know you were sort of a forerunner for a lot of, you know, mm. like you were sort of like a first experiencer mm. of a lot mm. of those sort of prejudices yes. or things, right? So um, yeah. obviously through your work being a kind of steamroller propelling energy <laughs> in this area to go, hang on, yeah, I am a CEO and I can be and, mm. you know, everyone else sit down and hear me roar, right? Um, mm. How has that frustration shifted or has it now that, you know, like a number of years have passed since that sort of some of those mm. first endeavours for you, has it cha- has, has that changed much, oh, gosh, re- you know? Question. Do you know, Romy, it's a funny old thing because, I, I mean, one of the things I kind of conclude at the end of the book, or, or well, no, right at the beginning of the book, I think I asked the question after all these years of working to try and advance a more equitable world for people living with a disability, you know, have things improved? Have we made mm. a difference? And not not just me and my my friends, but all of us, all of those people out there who are constantly pushing at the edges um, to see change. And you know, it's sort of it's it's a yes and no response. I think yeah. yes, there there are definitely improvements. There are. I mean, look, when technology is designed well. And when does and designed with the access community at the centre, it, it is literally di- life changing for people, you know. Mm. And um, the more we can involve people with a disability in the design of amazing accessible tech, the better. So yeah. I think in some ways, you know, we're better positioned than ever before. And paradoxically, we still fail to design access in, into so much day to day stuff. And um, the the employment stats um, have barely shifted, so the unemployment rates for people with a disability are still twice that of um, people without a disability of working age, and that's yeah. that, those rates have barely moved um, since I was twenty and I first really started to look for um, you know a professional pathway, and and even now you know it's 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 quite actually mortifying to say this out loud, but 
even at this point in my life, um, and, you know, I've stepped out of um, a lot of my formal work, just, you know, post-writing the book and set up a consulting business now and things like that. But I still feel really anxious in terms of what sort of contracts could could I pick up Mm. Um, because it's still really difficult to actually access employment. And I think this is where you see a lot of people with disability, if they are able, become self-employed. Yeah, yeah. Sort of you end up trying to bypass the frustrating systems rather than, so I think there are times when you try to, well, certainly for myself, there are times when I tried to work within the systems um, and and influence change from the inside. That is a strategy. Um, I then spent a lot of time trying to work, you know, putting us sort of out on the outside, um, navigating back in, offering advice and guidance. I'm not quite sure what this next phase is going to look like. I, I suspect um yeah i mean the frustration is still there i mm. i it it and you know this i think you learn to manage your life in a way where you sort of navigate around a lot of the access barriers that can just show up every day um but there's always those days when you're brought to your knees and i know just the other day i had to fill out some online form yeah um, in order get some funding for something and I just couldn't fill it out you know yeah and I just thought goodness gracious after all this time something as simple as a form can um can derail me and um um so and yet this book's out in the world there's this amazing you know level of interest um you know from people like yourself Romy and Audiobooks NZ and others that, you know, have picked up on the book and the story. And so I know that there are people interested in wanting to learn more about it, you know, how do we advance a more equitable world? So there's there's always good people wanting to do the right thing out there. But I feel like there's still some fundamental shifts, you know, that need to happen. Probably I I mean I personally I I I I await the day where we see government truly getting in behind this. Yeah. And also um, business leaders, um, we still don't see a real appetite to advance equitable employment um, from the big corporate businesses. Yeah. Um, accessibility, and we're talking about 25% of the population. We're not talking about some tiny percentage. 25% of the population live with a disability. By the time we're 65, it's 30%. Yeah. And we've got a rapidly aging population. As we all age, we will all at some time become disabled. Yeah. And yet we still seem to approach life as if it's people with a disability are those people over there rather than understanding it's it's us, it's our families, it's our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our grandparents, our children, our grandchildren. Um, and I think until we can really see um, this as part of the human experience, we're never really going to see the level of change that I think is needed. Um, and, I mean, I've been really lucky. I This year I've done some work with a number of um, international organisations that work with entrepreneurs who have disability in places like India and Kenya and Africa. Oh, that is Africa. Um, <laughs> yeah. Moldova. Yeah. Um, and um, through parts of Australia and America. And the same challenges are there all around the world, you know. The, on wow. the one hand, the access community is pr- possibly one of the most innovative communities in the world. Yeah. Because we, 
always have to problem solve just to get by. So the the ability to innovate and problem solve is very developed. And the same frustrations exist, the same lack of understanding around or or willingness to really commit to to shifting um, the experience of what it means to live with an impairment in the 21st century. It doesn't matter where we are. I mean, New Zealand is better than a lot of places. I would still say that. Um, and we, sh- we, we, there's so much more we could be doing. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's, it's such an interesting conundrum really, eh? Because in a way it's almost like, you know, you really, you really need people to be in leadership positions who have lived experience yeah. of disability in order to gain that level of, um, of advocacy and things. I was, um, recently, um, had to um, do some audio description, sort of voiceover for um, a government entity that was, um, I will not name them, (laughs) Um, but it was a government organisation that basically is an advocate for people who live with disability and they have received funding to basically try and and, um, make sure that they are employing, you know, over 40% of people with lived experience with with, with disability, right? Okay, so I was narrating all of these job descriptions and salary numbers and things, right? And I was sitting there just... I actually thought of you because I was like, oh, my God, I bet she would just want to rip this to shreds. Um, but it was – I, because, I mean, obviously I was I was narrating it for the website for people who are unable mm. to read it themselves, mm. so potentially vision impaired or dyslexic or in any of those other areas. And we're talking high-level jobs, babe, you know, mm. like CEO level, must have, <laughs> must have extensive experience with Microsoft Office, must have the ability to do this, that, the other, must have had 12-plus years' experience in a similar senior role. And, yes. and they're seeking someone, ideally, who, is, who, is a dis, who identifies as a disabled individual. Yeah. And I was sitting there going, and I have friends who, 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 who identify with many, mm. many different scopes within the disability sector, sure. sure. Mm. And, but I was going, I don't believe one of them would feel empowered to go, oh, sweet as, yeah, I'm going to sign up for this job description, right. which is budgeted at about 180k a year. But when I've been undervalued and underpaid my whole life, yes. I, don't, I don't have the accessible experience of Microsoft Office that they're, that, that they're requesting of me. Yeah. Um, I'm totally smart enough. I'm totally yes. agile enough. I am able to, I could, I could cycle myself rings around some of these people in their offices yes. that, uh, that a lot of them don't even have freaking elevators. Um, yeah. All good, whatever, right? We'll deal with that later. But, uh, you know, um, it, 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 it frustrated me a bit because I was like, yes. you guys are advertising and trying to fill these positions that are not, that are inherently not designed to carve or create a space for individuals who, yeah. how on, like, what percentage of identifying disabled people would have had that level of experience yeah, to, right. to, 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 to even apply? You know what I but mean? It just, right. it kind of felt like a real weird box ticky exercise, to be perfectly Got honest, you. by by a government entity that was like, yep, we want to make a space for these yeah. people. But I'm like, how are you doing that when... Most people who identify in that in that demographic are not going to have anywhere near the level of experience or yeah, expertise that you're requesting of them. That's just right, like right. a setup to fail. You know what I mean? I don't know. It just it yeah. It definitely made me. It 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 gave me um, 
a lot of sort of subtle reminders back to multiple chapters in your book where particularly mm-hmm. when you were um, in your in your vast travels overseas and when you were engaging, <laughs> um, like when you were engaging with organisations that did bother to make um, um, accessibility a priority, how it was just an automatic empowerment position for you to be in, you know? And I was yes. like... Man, like, but but most of those organizations were either spearheaded, founded, or developed, and or developed, and you know, um, run by people who had just f- enforced that this role is necessary because they themselves mm. live with a disability and they have decided to, you know, just actually actually carve out an area where they could be heard and things, you know. Yes. Um, there were quite a few of them in your book. I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but um. I know. I mean, like, if okay, if we if if we go way back into the into yes. into the sort of um, earlier chapters of the book, where we sort of look at where your sort of entrepreneurial sort of um, spirit and <laughs> and your innate innovative sort of you know mm-hmm. nature kind of really be, became honed and really was um, you know actively denying any level of victimization or victimhood mm-hmm. or any of that narrative, and you know you weren't you weren't um, jumping anywhere near that kind of pond when it when, yes. when when it came to those earlier chapters in your book. So, so some of these things. So you started a food truck. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you were in broadcasting. You're a yeah. CEO of a social <laughs> enterprise. Like, how did you sort of overcome or, or handle really actually just going, I'm just going to assume my right and my role here? Like, I am yeah. just going to do this because A, I need to pay my rent and B, oh, yes. <laughs> I need to do something with myself because I am I am a three-dimensional yeah. human that has ambitions and goals and yeah. and I've got a, a shit ton of ideas that are actually not yeah. bad, you know. Yeah. Um, how did you um, sort of become mm. that kind of forerunner and sort of have that sort of um, mm. innate entrepreneurial sort of spirit from mm. from, from the get-go, from f- from starting with the food truck, the first food truck yeah. almost, <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. I, look, do you know, it's funny because people do ask me that and even and someone did, you know, even with the writing of the book, they said, look, lots of people talk about writing a book but don't actually do it. And they said, but the thing is you say you've got to do these things yeah. and then and you follow through. And, um, and, and it's funny because I, you know, I sort of said, oh, you know, it was almost like, but why wouldn't you? You know, I mean, not to be difficult, but it's kind of like, why wouldn't I do those things? Is yeah. sort of the frame I often come back to. But then you've got to unpack that a little bit more, don't you? And I think I do wonder, you know, how much of this is, I don't know, in your DNA, how much of this is um, conditioning, you know, from early childhood. Um, I mean, certainly my... I mean, my, I mean, my parents, yeah, it's funny. I mean, both of them, mum did run a clothing shop when I was in my early teens and dad ran his own veterinary practice. Mm. But, and so, I mean, so maybe there was something there around just seeing your parents set up a business, do you know? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure because, but even earlier than that, I mean, I was going door to door selling things as a little child, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, I'm sounding incredibly capitalistic here. Um, Hardly, but there was it's always all right. a sense, you know, of um, 
trying to sort of make your own fortune, if you like. Yeah. Um, and I think, though, as the site impacted and I realised that mainstream work opportunities were perhaps going to be quite difficult, you're right, I think part of it was a survival technique around, well, if that door's not one that I can easily get through, I think what I've got good at is when something shuts off to me um, or looks incredibly difficult, I've got quite good at scanning the horizon line and thinking, well, there's always a way. What's another way of getting to this or achieving this outcome that I'm after? So if it was employment, if it was needing to raise money, if it was going to university, whatever it was yeah. that I set as a as a goal. And I think that's where my, what I now call my possibility mindset um, has probably been honed is some somewhere along the way I was lucky enough because I think it has been luck, lucky in many ways to not be confined to seeing one way of doing things. I've, I've always been able to see multiple pathways, if not right in the moment, because mm. um, I think sometimes we don't, you know. Um, yeah. But to I now actively think, okay, if this isn't going to work, there's got to be another way. And I used to find this with staff sometimes. People would say, oh, that can't be done or that doesn't exist. And I have such an instinct for it now where I'll say, hmm, well, yeah. I um, I really would have trouble believing that or accepting that that's true because in my experience, actually, yeah. you possibly haven't looked or tried hard enough. There will be a way to to come at things differently. And so I think, and interestingly, I think this is where I'm at in my life right now is I'm at a bit of a crossroads having written the book. And I thought a lot about obviously writing the book, getting the book published, getting it out into the world with all its accessible formats, I think I'd thought less about, okay, what happens after that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in a way that I also wanted the book to have to almost, and the reaction to the book to almost be the thing that sort of showed me what next. Yeah, um, sure. I didn't, I mean, I could have sat down and said, yep, here's my five-year plan um, or something, you know, but um, I also I also believe in giving things time and space to emerge and you you, you have your intention you set a goal, but there's also got to be space, I think, for the universe to kind of show up. And, um, you know, a big part of the book, I talk about this idea of what it means to be with, as in W-I-T-H, our access leaders, designers, innovators. And your comment earlier, Romy, was right. You know, we need to ensure more people with lived experience of disability are in roles where they have decision-making um, power and, mm. and real influence to drive change. Um, and in order to do that, we've got to really be conscious, uh, conscientious, intentional about ensuring that that happens. Otherwise, we're not going to really see see the change that we, we want to see in the world. Um, and so, um, oh, God, I've just slightly lost my train of thought there. I was no, heading off. Right. Oh, so no, with. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. this concept of being I was just with. just about to grab that. So Thank that's you. a yes, huge theme. Off. Yeah, um, no, that's a huge and, theme uh, in the book. So where did, so where did the, um, the con I mean, the concept obviously has derived itself from a word, yeah? Yeah. So, so tell us me, a little bit about that journey. Yeah, well, it came, I first was sort of introduced to this notion of with as being something a bit special through a friend of mine who, who's a designer. And she, I think it comes from design thinking where you talk about designing to people, designing for people or designing with people. And a lot of traditional design has been um, 
well, when I say traditional, I mean conventional conventional design practices yeah. have often been quite patronising, quite paternalistic, um, well-meaning often, mm. but it's definitely about we're going to design to that community or for that community. Yeah. And very little awareness was given to what does it mean to really design with a community. Um, and so she introduced me to that and I really liked the framing of with and that distinction from to and for. But then when I got sick, this word with um, during covid started to really, it just kept hovering around me. It was, I, I found myself thinking about it all the time. So I started doing some Googling and research on the word. So why, why am I thinking about it? And this is when I discovered that the word with has some of its earliest um, origins come from, I think it's Middle German. Um, and it, it, was, it was deeply associated with midwifery and childbirth. Mm. And I yeah. think it's you know mid, midwife, midwife, um, the um, and the concept of supporting birth, safe birth, safe passage, and I was thinking about that in the context then of social change and for my own life, and I thought, yeah, everything I try and do is about birthing a more accessible future, mm. and it's quite a feminine energy attached to that, which I also really liked, and so then I started to play with this concept that. To, to be with our access leaders, our access innovators, is to be with them in a way that enables the birth of a more accessible future. Um, and so that's what that word has come to mean for me, is the, it's the social contract, the, the relational aspect of society with our access innovators, leaders, designers, creators, because only by being with them with us, can we truly transform and create a more accessible future world? Um, and I think when I think about this place that I'm at, it's like, okay, I've put this invitation out to the world through the book of, you know, who would like to be with me? Who would like to be with us? And I think it's now sort of, in a way, testing my strength of character to see how long I can sort of wait in an active sense of waiting to see what emerges. So, because the work I want to do is in that with space. Um, I only now want to work with people who, who are really committed to advancing access in a deep way. Um, I, um, yeah, so so that's what whatever form that happens to look like, I'm not sure at the moment. I do think I'd like to do some more writing. Mm, um, nice, yeah, I was going to um, ask that. <laughs> It's well, like possibly this time fiction, actually, because um, um, anyway, that's a, that's another story. But um, I, yeah, I've had, I moved to Wanganui um, in the last yes. few months from Auckland, and um, and um, and it's been such an interesting experience. I thought actually maybe the next book could be fiction because then I can have a little more freedom to um, make up characters and storylines without worrying about you know, causing deep offence, you know, <laughs> if it's um, too easily identifiable. Yeah, sure. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, so this this theme of with um, is what will inform the next phase of my life. I don't currently know exactly what form that's going to take. Nice. Yeah, it's an interesting Which is time. exciting though, right? I mean, you know. Exciting and terrifying in equal quantities. Yeah. But that, I think that's when you know you're in a really interesting place in your life and, um, we've taken a risk and 
I've set the intention, I've moved my life in order to have the ability to perhaps pick and choose a little bit more in terms of the sort of work I do, yeah, um, and where I put my energy and who I work with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, equally exciting and terrifying. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely a very sort of on on the, um, what's the word? It's a very on the precipice kind of vibe. Yes. That, eh? Yes. Yeah. Totally. Oh. Which is where I find myself so often. <laughs> it's like I just, for some reason, seem to find myself back on that precipice because I think that's also where we make, well, it forces us to make brave decisions, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. So what, um, very quickly, um, I've just got a couple more questions. Um, but so what, what, what spurred the move down the line, by the way? So yeah. you were an Auckland gal for so bloody I long. I was for 30 years. And I was um, desperate to meet you at your book launch and I couldn't make it yes. that night for some silly reason. I can't even remember now, but I'm, I'm so frustrated because the photos of it were beautiful. Well, oh, um, you know, it looked yes. like a really, really lovely night um, in Ponsonby, eh? Yes, at the yeah. shelter clothing yeah. store, just beautiful. It was, oh yeah, beautiful, beautiful images that came from that night. It looked yeah. like a really successful evening. So what, um, what spurred <laughs> you to move away from everyone, babe? I know. Shit. Oh my goodness. Look, it was a couple of things. One, my mum, who's in her 80s, lives down here in Wanganui. Oh yes, And right. there was no other family down here. Mm-hmm. Um and we'd sort of talked about possibly her coming up or me coming down. And then uh, kind of coupled with that was also the, um, do you know, I think I so loved writing last year and it was such a privilege to have the time and space. But, you know, gosh, p- paying um, a mortgage, you know, on yeah. your own in the middle of Auckland um, requires a certain income and in order to earn that income you need a certain type of job, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. yeah, yeah. And I just thought, you know what, actually, if I'm really committed to this concept of being with, part of that means how do I set myself up at this stage of my life to be, um, to kind of be real about the fact that I am legally blind. It has an impact on my life, mm. but also create a life where I can really thrive Um as positively as possible and also do some of those creative things that have been bubbling away in me for so long. I think that's why I wrote so quickly is that there's these ideas that have been living inside me for such a long time. And I thought, well, actually maybe I can move somewhere and create a lifestyle where actually I can do more writing. I can be more creative. I can be near a mum. And, yeah, again, it's a bit of a brave one. It is, I think, uprooting your life and 30 years of friends and community and connections and professional relationships in Auckland and moving to Wanganui. But it's such an amazing community down here, and I think a lot of people are discovering Wanganui. Um, And there's quite a migration of people, probably a bit similar to myself and for similar reasons coming from particularly Auckland and Wellington and places um, and so there's a very strong arts community here. Um, and so there's something also about being part of a smaller community and contributing to that. Hopefully in time mm. I can, I yeah. can contribute. Um, I'm, it's, you know, it's very early days. I'm still just absolutely finding my feet, but people have been so welcoming. And, um, and in fact, the, I mean, gosh, the deputy mayor, and Paige's book gallery down here, this amazing bookshop, uh, are holding a, a celebration for me and my book in a couple of weeks' time. Oh, cool. Which Wicked. is so generous, you know. Yeah. It's like, 
Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, I feel it's the right move. It's a big move. But um, this is now home. Oh, look at that. <laughs> That's awesome. That Yeah, no, I mean, it's... um. Yeah, I think yeah, um for many of 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 the exact same reasons as you mentioned, you know, there's a um mass migrations away from the biggest yeah. cities and and I think particularly while, you know, I don't like to give covid too much credit, there is um something to be yeah. said for the fact that people all of a sudden realize something that we should have probably realized a long time ago, which was that in a lot of industries particularly, it shouldn't necessarily matter where you are with regards to, you know, being able yes. to still actually achieve quite considerably within your work. And I think um, particularly with the sort of um, creative um, industries or like just writing as well in general, yes. um, when you're sort of, there is a very specific energy in the city that I think, um, you know, you have to either tune into that and really ride that vein and yes. and, and have it service you back. Yes. Or you really need to get yourself into an environment that's going to really foster where you need to sort of be at to be able to get that kind of writing baby out. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, and it's, I mean, yeah, big, it's, it's yeah. not often going to happen in Auckland, I, I find, with, you know, a I lot of friends. I think it's hard, you know, unless you, you know, certain circumstances might lead in themselves. But, I mean, the thing that made it possible for me, once I got my head around the fact that, Actually, being in Wanganui, I see it as a portal to the rest of New Zealand and the rest of the world, mm. you know, and so you can just jump on a plane or, if you know, if, if that's what's required or, as we all know, you know, all of this international work I've been doing this year, um, all of that's been on Zoom. Or, yeah, or, totally. Know, and it hasn't held me back at all. Mm. Um, and in fact, I've done more global work since I've moved to Wanganui than I did before, you know. So, um, <laughs> Irony. Again, yeah. <laughs> But it's funny, isn't it? So it's about getting your head into the right place, you know, yeah. I think. Um, and again, then that possibility mindset. What is possible here? What can I do here that I couldn't mm. in Auckland? What? Yeah. And I think as long as you keep identifying where those opportunities lie, life is going to be very rich. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I love it. Well, so we're sort of, we'll we'll wrap up in a moment, but I do just have one more kind of quick question for you. So, um with regards to, like, obviously, you know, you talk about writing the book. I'm mindful yeah. that, um, and and obviously writing the book with the intention of it being the most accessible book in the country, if yes. not if not potentially the world. I'm unsure about yes. that. I, w I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't want to make that claim. But um, that that obviously has meant multiple prongs with regards to that. Right. So first question around yeah. it is, as someone who does have um, sort of barriers with regards to technology when it comes to actually mm. being able to physically sit down and see a keyboard properly or type or anything mm. like that. What was your process with regards to using technology or softwares or anything like that that actually enabled you to get the writing done in the first place? Ah, and mm. and what are um, and what are the sort of accessible platforms that people mm. can find the book or, oh, yes. or, or access the book through. Sure. No, yeah. great. So we'll write I mean, all that I, down for of, people. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. One of the best things, um, my mother was very um, prescient back in the 80s and she, when I, my site was diagnosed, she suggested I go and learn how to touch type. Um, at night school and so fortunately I did nice. and so whilst I'll never be the world's best touch typer I 
I have that skill and so I can use a standard keyboard. Um, so I wrote using a standard keyboard, but I then have adaptive software on my computer. I have a speech program called JAWS. Um, uh-huh, and JAWS, cool. you know, sounds rather like Stephen Hawkins' voice. Right, okay. You know? Um, so it's and, just like a text-to-speech type thing? Is that what it is? Uh, yeah. So okay. I type in and it reads it out loud, exactly. Uh-huh. And um, and then I also have a magnification program on my screen called Zoom Text. Cool. And so I use this kind of combination of those three things. Um, and so that's, as I said, that's where technology, when it works, is just life-changing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's far from perfect, but it does mean I can I, I was able to write a book. It did lead to some interesting uh, situations when it came to the editing and highlighting changes. And anyway, that's a that's a we could have that conversation another time. But in terms of the accessible formats, yes, there was absolutely, of course, being miss accessibility. Um, there was no question about the fact that we must release this book in as many different formats as possible. So to start with start with yes um Romy you were the uh, are the amazing narrator of my audio book and that was released as the printed book came out on the I think it was the 17th of August we also um and this is a New Zealand first um we were the first full non-fiction book to be fully translated into New Zealand sign language aha which is just incredible that 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 it hasn't been done before yeah and my amazing friends at Deaf Radio um, Sonia Pivak and Dan um, enabled this to happen. They they um, gave us an incredible mates rates um, <laughs> deal, um, and I think it's twelve hours of sign language. Wow! That Sonia is oh incredible commitment. Um, we are soon to release the book as a podcast series. Nice. Um, and again, uh, Theo and the team at Audio um, Books. Oh, have I got the name right there? Yeah, Audiobooks yes. NZ. Audiobooks NZ yeah. have been amazing. Um, so, so a podcast is another form. And we're just talking with a friend of mine um, who has recently started an amazing Braille and um, e-Braille service uh, to produce the book in Braille, in electronic Braille. Nice. Um, I'm still very much hoping that we can have the book fully translated into Te Reo Māori as well which would then make it, yeah, the most accessible book created. I mean, it possibly already is. I'm not sure um, if we've quite made that st- that um, position yet. But really I wanted that to be an aspirational thing and I'd, I'd love the book to be turned into as many formats as possible, not just in Aotearoa but around the world. Yeah. There's so many more versions that it could be turned into. I've got a friend who has an avatar that does sign language. We might at some point be able to have a – avatar signing the book um you know there's yeah. plain English versions there's a pictorial version there's I'd love to see people do interpretations of it through poetry and dance and music you know so to take it even to give expression to the book even if it's not a direct translation or you know yeah so that's still a project that's bubbling away and I'd love to activate perhaps in the new year we can see how we can activate that more broadly and get more more versions yeah. created. Oh, that's so exciting. Oh, wicked. Oh, well, this time has positively flown by. Um, 
<laughs> like, I've, I mean, I've, I've, I've been sort of furiously taking notes here. So um, I'll obviously, I'll include as much um, as much of that info about how we can sort of access um, any of these versions of the book that have kind of been um, sort of published and um, oh, promoted yes. and put out there. But is there, um, in terms of if, if people would like to get in touch with you or anything like that, oh, or, mm. or um, if anyone listening is interested in learning more about the whole concept mm. of WIF and or mm. your um, your mm. your organisation, your social enterprise work, um, your advocacy, any of those things. Is there a sort of one-stop shop where people yes. could sort of m- touchstone with you? Where, Absolutely. What, what, and what would that be? So that is um, www.minib.co.nz. And awesome. so, yeah, mini as in M-I-N-N-I-E, lowercase letter b dot co dot nz and that's my um website and my email is mini at mini b dot co dot nz um so on my website you can buy the book in all of those different formats i mentioned that Mm -hmm. are completed and as new versions are completed they will be added to my website um love to receive emails or any kind of i've had so many interesting emails from people who've read the book and um uh, and I just so I love hearing from people about their experiences. So wicked. yeah, wicked. Well, you heard it here, folks. On you go. Get in. Get involved. Get amongst. <laughs> I mean, he's a wonderful person. If you're in, if you're in Wanganui, then by all <laughs> means, I'm sure that you'll bump into her at some point. No doubt. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Minnie. It's been an absolute privilege to have some of your time this afternoon. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Romy. This has been amazing. Thank you. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Romy Hooper. You've been listening to Sound Salad for all things spoken and all things heard. To hear more Sound Salad episodes, visit www.soundsalad.co.nz. This podcast was brought to you by my gold sponsor, Audiobooks New Zealand. Check out their library at www.audiobooksnz.com. Your comfort in any way, please do not hesitate to press the call bell.